digging them deep, selling them cheap. It tastes like gasoline, rubber, and victory. We're just out here stacking pennies. And welcome back. It's episode five here, Stacking Pennies, guys. Starting to feel good about it. Starting to feel good about it. Starting to get a little more comfortable. It's unique, man. It's not Sunday money. It's not this. It's not that. It's stacking pennies. I hope y'all are enjoying it. We're a couple episodes in here. Uh, we got a killer show on tap for y'all today. We have a couple great guests with our, obviously, we got Kyle Larson. I don't know if y'all have heard of him. He had a big week, along with his crew chief buddy of mine, Cliff Daniels. With the president of Phoenix Raceway leading in, leading up to her race, Julie Geezy. Uh, and then we have my buddy Ryan Flores for uh, Pit Road Boats and Woes. But we had a big week in Vegas this week. Um, probably the most, the the wildest week on social media slash business marketing I've ever seen in my entire life. With Marco Simonis going absolutely haywire. Uh, given He was almost like the Oprah Winfrey. Of sponsorships this week. Hey, you get a sponsor. Merriman, you get a sponsor. Hey, Chuck, you get a sponsor too. Slap some Camping World stickers on there and let's go to let's go to town. What do y'all think about that ten, ten truck effort by Camping World this week? I mean, it 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 gives them a lot of exposure. I mean, if you're watching the Camping World Truck Series race and see a bunch of Camping World Truck Series NAS trucks out there, uh, odds are if you need something for your camper, where are you gonna go? Where are you gonna go pick that up? Well. Well, that's and that's true, but you know, if you go back and look at look at the stats, having that Camping World blue and blue and yellow on your truck this week was almost a kiss of death because almost every single one of those trucks got bent up. I think only two were in the top ten. So if you added it up, uh, the deal was Marcus Simonis would give fifteen grand to anybody who would put it on their truck. So that goes to show you there was at least ten trucks in the field. They have less than fifteen thousand dollars worth of sponsorship every race, and then I think it was like twenty five grand if you finish in the top in the top ten. So I think all in all, he spent about one hundred and seventy grand or so, and he got a ton of publicity off that junk. Oh, I fully agree, and I want to give a shout out to the spotters of those trucks for putting in a good bit of work trying to pick out. Oh, wait, is that my truck? Nope, that's the other Camping World truck. Nope, that's the other. Oh, crap. That, did that play a role in some of the incidents that you saw? Like a spotter might have been uh, looking at a different truck. Well, and and I think luckily they all kind of look somewhat different, but that was something pretty crazy. And, and that was something pretty crazy. It was really cool to see. I don't really think you see deals like that. That actually brought back some old J.D. Stacy memories, which we're going to cover later on in Corey's stories, one of these episodes. Um, but for what Marcus Lemonis is doing, he's obviously supported the – the truck series for, I think, the better part of a decade now. So he's definitely been propping that up and having a lot of fun with it. Obviously, that just goes to show the value that NASCAR can give these guys if they really support it like a guy like Marcus Simonis does. The extra incentive of, of those bonuses going up uh, is a pretty pretty big motivator too. But uh, who knows? Maybe we'll see it again, and, and maybe, we'll see, maybe we'll see one of those paint schemes win a race. Maybe I saw on Twitter this morning he was doing something for Atlanta. So there's no telling when that stops. And and I love to see it. Love to see it. Say, so do you think he ever takes that to Xfinity or even the Cup level? I know he was on the 99 car for the past two races. I think Camping World's been on there. Do you ever take that model and uh, up at a series? I don't know. I'm not. I'm not him. I'm not sure what what his business model is. Now I'm not sure. 15 grand for the for the Xfinity deal. 
uh, is is relative, you know, because those guys have to lease engines and stuff like that. The cost per event's a little bit higher. Now I'm sure there would be some guys taking the bait for sure. Um, but something else we love to see, I think we're seeing a resurgence. Now, granted, the nine car did win the championship this past, this past season, but we are seeing a resurgence of Hendrick Motorsports to their their fighting super team status because I think they got tired of hearing, oh, Stuart Haas this and oh, Gibbs this. Rick Hendrick, he ponied up over this offseason. We're seeing them Hendrick cars run strong this year. I mean, did you ever think that they weren't going to be, though? How how quick we are to forget, right? I mean, we we go a, a year and, a, a, you know, Chase wins obviously had some success last year, but uh, generally speaking, those Hendrick cars weren't strong week in and week out. But Chase Elliott's led every single race this year. Has He hasn't gotten victory lane yet. Uh, he's had a little bit of bad luck, but we saw Kyle Larson, which Merriman, wrong, heads or tails. Larson got in victory lane before William Byron gets his second win. There's a good chance all four Hendrick Motorsports cars get a win here fairly soon. Well, and Merriman, I'll let you touch on this more since you are NASCAR's reporter, but when you look at a team like Hendrick that has gone through that much change in the past five years, you went from having Dale Jr., Jeff Gordon, Jimmy Johnson, like you had some of the sports top Kane. names. And Casey Kane. Now, hang on, hang on. Before you go any further, think about the payroll save from that quadrant right. versus what but, they got now. But when you go from that caliber of talent, they retire, they move on, they do other things. You've got to replace that talent. And it's not always going to be a quick plug and play. We're winning right off the bat. They had to find that way to get back to their winning ways. And it took time. And I think we're seeing that pay off now. Uh, yeah, I mean, it it ebbs and flows. I think you can look at that over the course of, you know, however many years that all these teams have, have you know, been racing. Some teams, you know, the the valley's a little bit deeper than, than some, and some, the, the peak is a little bit taller than others. But the thing that sticks out to me is, you know, Kyle Larson's on-track performance from dirt to – back in a cup car is absolutely amazing he's a young guy and you know denny talks about it all the time statistically you peak at around age 38 to 39 to 40 you know granted we're four races into the season everyone's looking at kyle larson like oh oh boy this guy's going to be a championship favorite you know say he rattles off two or three more wins this season where where does he peak you know, in terms of his his cup driving career, Corey, how how hard is it to do what Kyle Larson did four races into a season where he basically sat out an entire year? I'm gonna I'm gonna give you a hot take here. I think Kyle Larson is in the championship four. Does he win it? Mm, he's gonna have twenty. He's gonna have a twenty five percent chance of winning it if he's in championship four. Obviously, uh, I think by the end of Kyle Larson's career, he is a multi time cup champion. And we have no idea what the what the ceiling is on Kyle Larson's career because he is a generational talent in the likes of uh, Tony Stewart, uh, Jimmy Johnson. I mean, he is an elite talent. You can see it when he goes to drive a sprint car, dirt late model, anything. Uh, the Kyle Larson sits behind. He's a contender. So now he's with Cliff Daniels, Hendrick Motorsports. are putting some cars, fast cars underneath of him. There's only the sky's the limit for Kyle Larson. When you look at Hendrick Motorsports, and you guys have mentioned before, uh, everybody's given their picks for the the championship four and who's going to make the playoffs. But is Hendrick Motorsports a team 
you've got proven winners with everyone in one of those cars. Will they get all four of their drivers in the playoffs this year? Yeah. Easy. How far, how far will they go? Who's the first one to get out and what round do they go out in? Could they get, could they potentially, hot take, hot take, get all four to the championship for? No. No. <laughs> never. No. No, I don't know. I wouldn't say never. No. I'm, I'm giving Merriman a chance here to like really like double down on his uh, <laughs> cold his, takes. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> ice cold takes. We should get Mary a well, sponsor for Ice that. water takes. Uh, I mean, we should make his own segment because we have a plethora of those. I'll we get got a little. Long, we got, I'll get a sound of some ice uh, jingling around. Oh, hang on. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, we got a long show today. We got a lot of good guests. Uh, so let's let's get some of our friends on. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. VR training platforms like the one developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International are helping surgeons train over and over before operating on real patients. As you practice each skill, the muscle memory starts to develop. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. Big week this week, guys. We don't have just one Vegas winner. We have two. I got my friend Kyle Larson and the guy calling the shots. Another buddy of mine, Cliff Daniels. How y'all doing? I'm doing good. How's Corey? I'm I'm good, but I'm not as good as you though. I'm doing good, but not as good as you. You look like you're. Where are you at right now? Uh, we're in Scottsdale. We came um, we came after the race, uh, so Denny had to wait on me for a couple hours, <laughs> and uh, which I've had to do plenty of times. But uh, yeah, we came we came to Scottsdale, so we're here all week, enjoying some nice weather and uh, great food. I mean, you got palm trees in the back. You got birds chirping. I mean, living life like a cup winner. Yeah, yeah. Well, I- I'm going to get to you in a second. I want to talk about Cliff Daniels because nobody knows about Cliff Daniels. Cliff, congratulations on etching your name on the list of guys who have been a cup winning crew chief. Corey, thanks, man. Really, uh, really cool day. Couldn't, couldn't be more thankful. We've got a great team and Kyle's, Kyle's a BA, man. Well, that's no question. Let me set the table on Cliff Daniels. Cliff is the most competitive guy you've ever met in your entire life. If there is a alpha male, uh, Cliff Daniels is like three notches above that. Um, I little backstory: I played on Cliff Daniels' kickball team for what was it, four years? I don't know if we lost a game. Uh, he verbally accosted me almost every week if I wasn't uh, if I didn't have my shorts on right, my socks pulled up, if I wasn't jogging off the field. So, what? How do you take that competitive attitude? Uh, obviously, we've seen what you can do on the pit box, uh, but how do you apply that to when you have a new guy put, pressing the button this year in Kyle Larson? Uh, how do you almost sometimes pull the reins back on somebody like him uh, and, and get the job done? Yeah, I mean, I guess first off, you know, it's it's been a, a bit of a learning journey for me over the last few years to go from, you know, I used to play competitive sports growing up, uh, baseball, soccer, played some football here and there, like, 
I was always kind of in the player environment. And then, you know, when, when I raced legends, late models, um, you know, even go-karts when I was a kid, you know, I was always the player. Well, then it had to take a shift to get more of, of becoming a coach and understanding how to, you know, how to, how to be a motivator, how to be a leader, um, how to work with a lot of different personalities and, and, um, you, you know, make the most out of every situation and every individual get the most out of them. So, you know, candidly, there was a bit of maturing that I, I had to do in that role um, just to just to know how to, to to make everything kind of gel together and work together more than just being a go getter as a player. Um, and someone that really helped me a lot in that journey, you know, was was Jimmy over the last few years. And uh, the, the way, you know, he, he kind of was at, at that point of his career, having won, you know, all the races and championships, you know, he could see uh, my competitive nature, but, but helping me, you know, kind of harness it to, to, make, um, to make our team the best that it could be. So uh, a lot of valuable lessons learned over the last few years. And then coming into this year, knowing that we had Kyle, you know, it's been way more, um, I, I guess, eye-opening to see his demeanor that, that I got to be around at the the few dirt races that I went to with him between last fall over the winter. Um, and then as the season was getting going, just to see, you know, how calm and how methodical his approach is, you know, outside the car, but then when he gets in the car, um, you know, his foot's on the gas. So it wasn't, uh, you know, really on me at that point to be a cheerleader for him um, because he had so many items covered in his area that for us, it's just making sure the team is buttoned up. We put the right pieces in place around him. And, and if we do our job and, and we make sure we're, we're, you know, checking all the boxes and um, operating at a, a high level at hundred percent, that uh, it, it was going to be there for Kyle with, with where he's at in his career and kind of his mental approach that um, if we had the right pieces, he, he was going to. I want to rewind a little bit because there was a time you and I went to lunch a couple of times and I'll frame it up. You get what would be considered a dream job. You get to work with your, with your childhood hero. You were Jimmy's number one engineer for a couple of years, several championships. You get to crew chief Jimmy Johnson on his farewell tour. And it's, you want to do nothing but get that guy in victory lane and put him in position to win races. And you weren't able to do that. And you and I've had some pretty candid conversations on, uh, you know, self doubt and confidence and, and so how obviously Mr. H believes in you, the guy sitting here next to you, Kyle Larson believes in you. Uh, but sometimes that, that doesn't do enough when if, it's hard if you don't believe in yourself. So where were some, what were some things that you did to, uh, to stay, to stay solid uh, and believe in yourself? Yeah. A lot of that really came down to just my, my faith and kind of spiritual journey um, because there, there was certainly a lot of doubt, right, with a, a seven-time champ and nobody's ever going to question Jimmy Johnson's abilities. And I, I think we proved a lot last year that we could still, you know, be really fast on track. Um, but for one reason or another, the the win never materialized and, and we weren't able to just, you know, put it all together for a string of races when we thought we had the potential to do that just with the speed in our car and, and the way our team was operating. Um, we, we thought we had a lot of bases covered and it didn't work out. So my spiritual journey and, and again, kind of just this maturing process, you know, within that and within being a leader of, of our team, um, encouragement from guys like Jeff Andrews uh, here at Hendrick, Alan Gustafson has been a great mentor to me and just, uh, you know, taking a step back, seeing the whole picture of, of the team, you know, of our company, of, 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 you know, what it takes to go compete at this level. Um, and, and one of the biggest lessons in all of that 
is is uh, you know if you have the right people in the right places, keep it simple. And 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 you know you can make it really hard when you don't have success, right? You you can think you've just got to you know grind it out harder, work harder, more hours. You know, is there more things we should be doing? And and sometimes the simplicity of it um, can be what makes you successful, right? Focus on the, the the immediate priorities in the moment, and make sure you've got a well prepared car and you've done your homework, and and otherwise don't you know confuse it or complicate it. So all those lessons taught me a lot, and uh, and and then again bringing in the the key piece of the puzzle this year with having having Kyle and kind of a reset for our team um, has been just just incredible. So Kyle, you you spent obviously the beginning part of your Chip Ganassi racing winning six t- times there, but it only took you a company record four races to get uh, Rick Hendrick and Victory Lane with yourself behind the wheel. What are some just noticeable difference from your first week driving into Hendrick Motorsports and what you were used to? Uh, yeah, I mean, I think the really this weekend was the first time I could tell like a, a big difference um, between the two organizations. Um, just really the main thing was being able to get across the bumps and one and two um, really well, uh, where before that was kind of always the area where I struggled. And in any track that's been rough um, in the 42, I, would, I felt like I always struggled a little bit. And I you know, even back before I was in a HMS car, I, you know, you could look at video and pictures of their cars going through bumps and like, man, it doesn't even look like there is a bump. And, um, that's kind of what it felt like this week at Vegas. Um, also just, I felt like I had a lot more just natural speed than what I'm used to there. Um, you know, I think typically we would always go to the track at Ganassi with a lot of downforce built into the cars, um, and drag. So that's, I think what I, I felt, um, so yeah, this weekend was probably the first time I, I really felt a, a big difference, but, um, for the most part, I mean, it hasn't, it hasn't seemed like crazy different. Like what I think a lot of people probably expect when you go to a, a new team or a team that, that wins a lot, um, you know, stock cars to me are still rigid. There's not like a, a whole lot of movement in them. Um, I'm still running Hendrick power. So it's, it's not like I feel stuff or, or hear things that are way different so before every year there's always the whiteboard topics right these are the goals these are the boxes we're gonna have to check this is what we think we can uh, accomplish have you adjusted those or changed a little bit of game plan now that you know your tickets punched for the playoffs already this early in the season uh for me i mean i said this in the media center i don't know if this is just weird or or what but like i don't ever really like set goals i don't say like, oh, I want to go out there and win four races this year. Cause I mean, I think, I think if you set a bar, you're only, you're only trying to get to that. You're not like trying to go way above and beyond. So I don't, I don't really set goals. I just want to go out there and win a bunch of races, be consistent, finish all the races. Um, and then I think, I mean, I guess if you look at one ultimate goal, it's, it's obviously to win the championship. So that doesn't change. Um, that always stays the same. Um, but I guess, yeah, throughout the season, I don't really, I don't really have goals and, and I don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing, but I guess in my mind, I, I, th- I think it's a good thing. I'm sure the guy next to you, Cliff, has your, is your philosophy on how aggressive you're going to be for stage points, uh, up until the playoffs start to try to get some playoff points. Is that going to change any? You know, not really. And, and I think it's interesting. Kyle and I haven't had this particular conversation like one on one together, but we're very much aligned, I think, in how we're kind of uh, approaching every race right now. You know, in, in the past, 
different teams I've been on, you know, you would set a goal at the beginning of the year, hey, we need X number of stage points per week. And if you get X number of stage points per week, you're going to be seated, you know, in this category by the end of the year, even if you don't get a win, you'll be in the top eight or top six or top four in the regular season standings. Then you can go into the playoffs with this number of playoff points or whatever. Um, we haven't really taken that approach this year. And, and I don't know that we're going to, I think making sure every week we're thorough in our prep and, uh, and go to win that week, you know, like Kyle said, if, if there's an established bar and that's where you're trying to get to, um, you can almost limit yourself because what's, what is on the top side of that? What, what if we, you know, do the right, uh, homework and, and we have the right puzzle pieces in place? What if we can go really knock it out of the park? So, um, I, in a way we're almost like tunnel vision every week. Hey, this week is Phoenix. We're going to prep for Phoenix the same way that we, you know, went about preparing for Vegas with our data, our video, our SIM, our notes, that's how we're going to prepare for Phoenix, you know. I'm glad you guys came on Stack and Penny so you could have the in-depth conversations you haven't had yet this year. <laughs> Kyle, I need to pick your brain. What's what's this damn dirt race going to be like? And two questions. Are you running a sprint car here next week, the Nationals? And B, uh, what is this cup car going to drive like around Bristol? Uh, so I'll race a late model um, for Kevin Remley uh, there at Bristol, which would be cool because I'll get to get some laps before I'm running, we actually I'm running, a, yeah, I'm running a crate late too, so I'll be lost oh, in yeah. last year's Easter eggs out there. <laughs> That'll be no, it'll be fun. I think, I think you'll, I don't know, I, I really don't know what to expect. Um, I think, I think it's gonna be well, I think next week will be harder. Um, just because the cars would be faster and harder to pass people where I think our cup cars, the pace will probably be a little slower. So maybe you'll be able to race a little bit easier, but um, yeah, I don't know what to expect. Like, I don't think we're going to be out there sideways and, you know, stuff like that. So I, it's going to be way different than what I'm used to on dirt. So I don't, you know, I think you know, a lot of people probably point at me and bell as being the favorites, but I I think the really real only advantage that we have is just being able to read a track surface and how it's changing. Um, and two, I think that dirt that they have on there, the orange, orange style dirt, like it doesn't change a whole lot. So I don't think that we have much of an advantage at all, but, um, I'm, I'm interested. Uh, it's definitely going to be a unique race, but, I don't know what to expect until we get on track. So the interesting fact I think I'm looking at is it's a day race. So that thing's going to be caked. Uh, how much tire conservation do you think we're going to have to do to try to keep the right rears on? Yeah, I don't, I don't know. Um, it could be, you know, a day race obviously is um, not ideal for dirt racing um, because it does get so dry and, probably one lane and, and if you're getting out of that lane it's going to be dust um so honestly i i hope it i hope it takes rubber and gets black and gets you know a couple grooves of rubber built into it um if it does yeah i mean you'll have to take care of your tires maybe a little bit more but but i don't i don't know how much wheel spin we're going to have you know if we have a lot of wheel spin that's when yes you got to manage your stuff just like you normally would on a on a martinsville or something like that but i don't think i think with all the banking and stuff like that it, i don't think we're going to have a ton of wheel spin but 
I just, I don't know. I, I, I don't think any of us know until we get on track. Yeah, a lot of unknowns there, but it should be fun. All right, before we go, we do would you rather questions with every one of our guests. So buckle up, it gets a little crazy. Kyle Larson, would you rather eat nothing but dirt track Philly cheesesteaks for a week or drink nothing but racetrack lemonade for a week? Ooh, racetrack lemonade for sure. Cliff Daniel. Lemonade. Okay, I- I'm going with that too. All right, would you rather race a Southern 500 with no helmet hose or a sprint car <laughs> race with no tear-off? Uh, definitely a sprint car race with no tear-off because I've I've – had that happen a handful of times and gotten through it and you, you can manage with no tear-offs yeah when i won when i won that late model race the last dirt race i ran um my tear-off post probably fell off with 20 years more laps to go and well having to wipe to, to be to be honest there's nobody in front of you whenever you're running any sort of dirt race so that's probably well i was in i was in lap traffic at that point <laughs> so i was i was having to wipe all right, last one. All right, here's here's an interesting one. Would you rather have a, uh, a three championship winning NASCAR career, but never race a dirt car again, or never win a cup championship, but race as many dirt races as you want? Oh, hmm. It was seven championships, but then that's like kind of an easy. I feel like three is kind of like eh, made you think about it a little bit. I probably, I honestly would probably do three cup championships. All right, well, there and there you have it from the man himself. And you got palm trees, birds chirping in the back. I don't want to hold you up anymore. You got some golf clubs to go swing. Cliff and Kyle, I appreciate it. Congrats again. Thank you for joining us in Stacking Penny. Yeah, thank you. Thanks, Thanks, for, thanks for having us, man. As a professional welder, Shayna Ford uses Forge FX to practice over and over, which helps her improve her skills. The more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. All right, guys, we are here with a very special guest, President of Phoenix Raceway, Julie Geezy. Thank you for joining us here on Stacking Pennies. How are you doing today? I am good. Happy Phoenix Race Week. I, I'm pumped up. Phoenix has turned into one of my favorite racetracks. I I guess I should start by asking you this. Do you ever get confused on what the racetrack is called since it's been named five different things in the last five years? I don't get confused on uh, what it's called. I will admit I have to check myself when I think about the turn numbers, though, since the renovation we did put the start finish line in a different location. I have to remember and give myself a quick, okay, turns one and two is by hillside now. And I still call it old school turn one, two. I still, I'm completely flipped, flipped around in that. But it wasn't only just they moved some turn, corners around. They redid the entire racetrack, which is fairly obvious for anybody that's seen a race on TV. Uh, but what is your favorite uh, part of the racetrack? You're sitting in the barn, which is my personal favorite because it's a really neat bar designed by Jeff Gordon and his wife. 
uh, and there's a lot of fun to be had in there. So what is your, if you had to pick one spot at the racetrack, what's your, what's your go-to? Oh, that's really hard because there's so many great things about Phoenix Raceway. The hillside to me is just iconic and it's, it's, it's old school. Um, and that view that you can sit on the hill and watch the race. But when you think about the renovation that we completed a couple of years ago, the infield experience to me is a game changer. It uh, really, I mean, our sport is so much about the access and being able to look into the garages and things. I mean, we took it to that next level to be able to actually walk into the garages and see you guys working on the cars and um, and then Victory Lane being so immersive with uh, a thousand fans or more all around you. And we actually built Victory Lane specifically for the fans and then figured out how to bring the car in um, because we wanted those fans to be part of it. Um, so that's uh, probably my favorite part, but there's just, this facility is, I mean, it's top notch and I love every single bit of it. And I like on Sunday, I'll go sit in the grandstands with the fans a little bit and watch the race. Really? You're yes. going to be out with the common folk with a Bud Light watching cars go around. <laughs> uh, probably not a Bud Light, uh, but uh, yes, I mean, I love, so I grew up a race fan and um, I am definitely most comfortable with the fans. Uh, yesterday we had our campers moving in, so was out there with donuts for everybody as they were coming in, spent a lot of time just swinging by campsites saying hello. And uh, Sunday, you know, I want to feel what they feel, see what they're seeing and also just hear from them. And what they're what they're enjoying um you know is everything working good or is the speakers need to be a little bit louder i mean all those things that you, I, that you don't always see when you're running around doing things uh, so yeah i love to spend a little bit of time in the grandstand something that i've always noticed going to phoenix in particular is the racetrack goes above and beyond for just traffic flow and making sure that uh, the fans are taken care of and they everything's accessible uh, with 20% capacity, similar to what we had at the championship race in November, we have it the same uh, here this, this coming week. Hopefully we get opened up by November again. That's what we're all hoping for. Uh, but did you change anything from the championship event to, uh, to better suit the fans for this particular week? No, I, I think for us, we learned a lot for November. It was the first time we had run through those protocols. And, and you think, I mean, this time last year, we were the last race to run with a full crowd. And uh, we had the benefit of learning from all the other tracks that were starting to host fans as we went into November. Looking at March, it's, it's a lot of the same protocols. Um, and I think for us, it's just we learned a lot about just making sure the fans understand what it means um, and what it looks like, what it looks like when you come to the gate, what the expectations are. The tickets are digital. Uh, this this event, which was a, a change from championship, we really wanted to have that commemorative first championship ticket for our race fans that they could hold on to. So that's probably, and that sounds uh, small, but obviously, you know, race fans are used to those, those um, paper tickets. So this, that'll be a change, but just making sure everybody understands uh, the protocols and, and what to be ready for when you get here. Um, and it was great yesterday. Again, we're talking to the campers. So many of them were here in November and they talked about how, how much they enjoyed the race weekend in November, how safe they felt, how well they thought the protocols did. So it was just nice reinforcement that uh, we're doing the right thing so do you think that and and the thing about nascar is that the drivers and the competitors and the fans have always been able to intermingle and with coronavirus and all this sort of stuff like we don't get to engage with the fans other than social media uh so i was wondering from your side of the uh side of the fence i guess 
what are some things that the competitors can do to engage with the fans in a safe way uh, to almost give them that value? Because now, like you mentioned, uh, you know, we have this elaborate pit area and the fans can literally sit three feet away from us working during practice. But we have one day shows. We're not in the garage. We're not intermingling all these people, which was one of my favorite things to do at Talladega or Phoenix or some of these places. Um, So what do you think that uh, we as competitors can do to, to keep the fans engaged? I think that, I mean, I think you guys have done a great job. You talk about social media and I think um, just being accessible and doing the Q and A's, we do a lot of virtual Q and A's that we'll record um, leading into race weekend that we'll put up on our app and, and we put them on the big screens. Cause that's the other thing. You know, everybody's used to those fan Q and A's race morning, whether it's in the midway or in the infield or, or here in the barn. Uh, so we tried to record a bunch of those in advance, be able to throw them up there. We let the fans ask the questions um, via social media um, and, you know, just more things like that. The other thing we're going to do is, um, we, and we've done this with some of our partners before, but we're going to do even more, some surprising delights out in the campgrounds, just little gift bags, thank you bags, um, some notes from, from me and, and some others, just when they wake up Sunday morning, walk outside the, the camp, the RV, they got a little surprise waiting for them. Julie, it is women's history month. Uh, and we have some very influential women from the top of the sport, such as yourself, to competitors. You, you can point out Haley Deegan, uh, among several other ladies on pit road that are changing tires. So how much confidence does that give you uh, that, that there's so many women making an impact? In our I think it's tremendous. And, you know, I spent a lot of time at Daytona during my career, and I heard so much about Annie B. France and the role that she played with Big Bill in creating this sport. And I think uh, she's been an inspiration to me. It's a story that I, I love hearing um, about her role. And I think as you look forward from Lisa's involvement, um, I, I also very much enjoy Jill now being Jill Gregory being out at Sonoma Raceway um, and another female track president. And like you said, all the all the competitors, I, it's it's tremendous. It's exciting. It's inspiring. Um, and I think it's only going to continue as we as we move forward and um, just excited to see where it goes. Honestly, um, I think we've got a lot of momentum. I forgot about Joe Gregory going out to Sonoma. You guys are mm-hmm. taking the world by storm. It's we, great. Let me let me give you a minute. If somebody's on the fence, if we are 100% cross our fingers, 100% capacity in November, why is the reason they should take a trip out to Phoenix Raceway instead of watch the championship race on their couch? Well, first of all, the weather in Phoenix in November is unbelievable. It's uh, definitely incredibly nice. Um, But then Phoenix Raceway, I think the last, especially the last several races, it's great racing, um, which you need from a championship perspective. But then I think you look at the fan experience here. It is as immersive as you're going to get. Um, And again, we talk about the infield experience. Um, from the moment you walk through the gates, you've got Wi-Fi, which is a big deal these days and always isn't, isn't always the case. So the moment you walk through the gates all the way in your seat through the infield, you've got Wi-Fi and you can uh, be sharing your photos out to your, fa- your friends and let them know what they're missing out on. And then that camper experience, like I would encourage everybody if they haven't camped at Phoenix Raceway before, I, I think people forget what or don't always recognize the amount of campers we have. We have thousands of campsites. Tons. It's huge, um, and the camping experience here is a lot of fun and just something to you've got to put it on your list. Well, Wi-Fi and camping. Who else? I mean, that's <laughs> might as well be glamping. Hey, we, Say we no have more. that on the list. <laughs> Say no more. Glamping at Phoenix Raceway. Well, Julie, I appreciate the time. I know you have a lot of work to do gearing up this week. Hopefully, I see you out there. 
Uh, but keep up the good work out there in Phoenix, and we'll see you here soon. Absolutely. Good luck this weekend, and thanks for all you're doing. I appreciate it. All right, we're back. One of my favorite segments, heads or tails, Merriman. And I had this one buried, like the third or third or fourth one I was going to ask, but I'm going to start with this one. First, heads or tails. Jonathan Merriman versus ever getting a heads or tails correct. What are you going to take this week? I'm going to bet on me. I think I'm going to get a heads or tails this week. Look, if if I was right all the time, uh, you know, no one would have a reason to, you know, tune into Corey LaJoy's podcast. They would tune into my podcast. Well, I don't have a podcast because I'm not right all the time. So I guess you are right. This is a courtesy to you. <laughs> well, thank you for giving me softballs every week. Um, yeah, I don't, I still think you're like 0 for 40 this year. So keep up the good work. Um, I'm going to take, I'm going to take not getting one. That's what I'm going to take in that heads or tails. So good luck for this week. Now let's get on to some meat. We're going to go Chase Elliott won the last race there, obviously, and the championship versus this previous this previous uh, guest on Stag and Pennies, Kyle Larson. Who are you taking head to head this week? Uh, I'll take Chase just because I think going back to back is super hard. Uh, winning in the Cup Series is super hard, but going back to back in the Cup Series is twice as hard. So I'll take uh, Chase Elliott. Now, wouldn't be going back to back winning Phoenix twice in a row. I mean, technically, they both could be going back to back, depending on what your definition is. It's all semantics, I guess. <laughs> I, I'm gonna go. I'm gonna go with Chase as well. I think uh, as strong as they were in that season finale race, I think Allen's gonna have that thing tuned up. This leads us in our, our third one. I got Gibbs versus Penske. I'm gonna take. Uh, man, I don't. I don't know. That was that one's pretty, gonna be pretty tough. Uh, I think. Kyle Bush might eke something out here. I think he's probably going to be the highest finishing Gibbs driver. I'm going to take Gibbs. All right. I'm going to go Penske because I think the two, and we'll talk to Ryan here later in the show, uh, the two had the strongest car uh, at Phoenix in that championship race, and they lost it on pit road for him. So I'm interested to see what Ryan's take is on that. Um, so I'm going to go Penske in that head-to-head, and I'm sure I'll be correct, and you'll be wrong, sir. Um, what else we got? Anything You got any ones for us? I was uh, keying in on on Kyle Busch and Kevin Harvick. Those are two guys you always circle when you come to Phoenix. Uh, Obviously, we know Kyle had a bad year last year. Uh, Kevin didn't look so good at Las Vegas. He hasn't been that great at Phoenix for the past three or four seasons. So who do you think is going to fare out better at Phoenix this time around, Kevin Harvick or Kyle Busch? I don't – I mean, I could even go one more, one deeper. Stuart Haas versus a top 20 because they only got one in the, by the skin of their teeth there in Vegas. I think that was a uh, pretty lackluster showing by Stuart Haas. I feel like that might have been one of their worst ones in a couple of years with Kyle, uh, Kevin Harvick running 20th and all the other cars finishing outside of top 20. So I'm sure that the post-race meetings at Stuart Haas racing this week were none too fun. I'll throw one at you guys real quick. Okay. All right, who gets back to 2020 form first? Is it Denny Hamlin or is it Kevin Harvick? Ooh, I don't – judging by the looks of it, neither one of them. Uh, you know, Hamlin ran good last week at Vegas. Um, and, you know, if you win six races, uh, odds are you're going to be in contention for some more. But Stuart Haas is not looking very good right now. So I'm going to go I'm gonna go Hamlin in that head-to-head or heads or tails. 
I'll I'll go Harvick just to just to disagree. I, I do think Hamlin's probably in a better position early in the year to capitalize, but I think down the stretch, you know, Rodney Childers is probably the best guy on the pit box. I don't think he's gonna I don't think twentieth is gonna sit well with him to your point earlier, Corey. So I think they're gonna write the ship here pretty soon. And then hot take follow up to that of those two. I mean, we've got the young guys coming into into the sport. Which of those two is the first to hang up their helmet and retire? From the Cup Series or altogether? From the Cup Series. We'll just go strictly Cup. Yeah, I mean, we've seen with Jimmy Johnson, you can go out there and run IndyCar and like everything's, you know, you can you can go out and do other stuff. But from the Cup Series, which of those two is the first to hang it up? Well, I think I think you've got to you've got to look at. So Hamlin just signed another multi-year deal, so he re-upped as well as FedEx did. So he's probably in it for another two or three. Um, and I think Harvick's just control of his own destiny. Now we're seeing Keelan race a little bit more. He's traveling a lot, racing go-karts, doing, uh, doing some good things there, winning a lot of races. So, you know, I think that uh, I, I would go with Harvick hanging up the helmet and putting the dad hat on and hanging out with Kevin Harvick racing him, or Keelan Harvick, and being a racing dad. Yeah, Denny's also got a, a, a team he can fall back on if things don't work out in that, that 11 ride, you know. So I think uh, I think Harvick's gone first, but, you know, they both of them could be around for, for quite a while. They they both they both have certainly earned their keep for as long as they wanted to stay. But I, I don't ever see Denny driving for 2311. I think he's a lifer at Gibbs, and then he will just hang it up right off into the sunset and just manage that deal. Uh, and for whoever they got going, I would imagine they're going to try to be expanding. They've talked pretty openly about it, trying to expand, get a couple more charters in there, and build a big shop. And they got big plan, big grand plans for 2311 racing. So I'm excited to see what that turns into. Uh, and just it's an influx of another strong team in the Cup Series, which is good for everybody. There you have it, Merriman. Head to tails with a couple from Chuck. All right, we're back with my buddy Ryan Flores, front changer. I'm Brad Kozlowski's Ford Mustang with Pit Road Boats and Woes. What you got this week? Hey, how about our, our buddy and fearless kickball captain leader, Cliff Daniels, getting his first cup win. Shout out to him. Shout out to Cliff Daniels. He was on the show earlier. Um, he he uh, he was wide open. He's pumped up. I'm, I'm pumped up for our fearless leader of the balls and dolls, Cliff Daniels. I feel like we helped his leadership skills all those years of kickballing with him. That or that or we uh, that or we taught him what what tactics did not work because verbally accosting us for not jogging off the field uh, is probably a little bit too much for a co-ed kickball league. I can only imagine what his picker has to go through. Poor guys, but hey, they got somebody pushing the button now. Kyle Larson got the job done for him this weekend. You just off air, you were telling me. My left rear changer risked, risked his uh, life and limb to put the fifth nut on my left rear during a green flag stop. Tell, tell, tell the listeners what happened. He did. It looked like on your green flag stop there, it looked like they had a left side adjustment. Uh, so your jackman did the adjustment. So they had some time, and I guess he knocked one off on the hang. And uh, I'm telling you, if I was changing tires for you, you've been going around there with four nuts. But when you, when you reach down and put a lug nut on like that, especially on the left rear, um, Anytime you kind of stab at a lug nut when the car is leaving, uh, when you dump the clutch and it starts spinning the tires, 
there has been times when people get their fingers ripped off, your hands get stuck in the wheel, the the lug the the gun goes in between the spokes of the wheel and will break the gun in half. So that's a risky move, but uh, whoever your rear changer is, he has your best interest in mind. Mm. Probably the biggest story on pit road this weekend was the gun, the front gun on Matt Benedetto's car taking a dump on the last stop. So he ran around with three new tires and one old left front. And I can assure you that was not a fun day. You said you just got done having a meeting about it. What happens when a one of those air guns uh, stops working? So there's a lot of different things that happen. And that's something that we've seen happen a couple times with, with his gun, the reverse valve. So there is a, there is a uh, valve in the back of the gun. You'll see the guy smack it um, and switch it. it. It's what caused the gun to go from reverse tighten the lug nuts and loosen the lug nuts and when he left the right side it was in the tightened position after he tightened the right front and when he sat down on the left front he couldn't switch it back to the off position um so as he dove for the backup gun the left rear was done and the jackman just dropped the car i feel like that's the right move on a green yeah. flag stop there unless you're courting left fronts i feel like that's the right move because you're not gonna make that time up i mean you're gonna lose 10 seconds there Maybe, yeah. maybe more. So um, I don't really know what side of the fence everybody was on. I felt like that's the right move. Uh, but obviously they didn't pop a tire and it probably saved them 10 or 15 seconds. What is the difference between when that last stop of the day is a green flag stop versus a, a yellow stop? Uh, is there a different pressure, like a different cadence to it, uh, knowing that you have a little bit of leeway with a green flag stop? A little bit, but like you – you got to get it right. You cannot afford to have anything major happen. Like, I think you'll see a lot of guys, if they're going to do an adjustment, stick a, stick a wrench in the window or, or do some packer. You'll try to do it on a green flag stop because you're kind of spread out. And if you lose a second or two there, um, it's, it's okay. But you want to have that stuff done before the last run of the day, right? And we were second. We came in. Larson had missed pit road, so we had a chance to, to get them there, to, to at least get close. Um, they executed just as well as we did. But another thing happens, um, not so bad now with this new package, but the cars used to come in with the brakes on fire, and they still do on a green flag stop. And one thing that happened this weekend was the left front was smoking so bad on our car because we were down at the end of pit road. So he's on the binders hard getting in there. If there's any built-up rubber that's still burning that doesn't have a chance to kind of cool down under caution when you take a couple caution laps before you come to pit road, I mean, it's, it's hard to see the lug nuts on the left front when it's smoking like that. And it's another thing you'll see this weekend in Phoenix where the brake dust gets really built up in there. And those couple caution laps, when you slow down, it lets all that stuff fall out and kind of cool down a little bit, but man, it gets pretty hard to see, especially on the front. So something about Phoenix, obviously unique is that really bent pit road. If you're pitting in the bend, obviously, if you uh, are trying to pick a stall, you try to pick towards the front or towards the back, not in the curve. Um, but is there anything unique about pitting it? Or is it hard to see the cars when they come around the corner if they're in a line uh, and you get a late jump over the wall? Phoenix is not as bad as, per se, like a Martinsville because the, what they've done with pit road now is it's so long. It's such an extended pit road that the boxes are so big. So you have a lot of time from your jump line. Your jump line is the box before you's back line. So you have a whole pit stall to get out there. And with those pit boxes being so long, you have a lot of time to get out there and get set up 
even if your visibility, even if you can't see them until your jump line, which there you, you can see them a little bit more. The pit road is wider uh, from, from where the actual pit stalls are to the fence. So the guys tend to stay out a little bit longer. So it's not as much of a challenge, but the, the thing that is challenging with that big of a pit box is you drivers have a lot of room to stop. And uh, there, there's sometimes it makes it really challenging to read the cars because there's a lot of there's a lot of room to go really far forward or stop really shallow. So you got to make sure that that your driver's stopping on the pit sign and getting the left sides close enough to the wall because you can see uh, on really big pit stalls like that sometimes it's challenging when you get too far away from the wall because it's hard for your guys behind the wall to roll tires in. It's hard to get your tires back. It's harder to pull hose. There's a lot of things that go on. So. So there's a lot of time, seconds to be lost in where you guys stop in that gigantic pit box. Yeah, there's that's something that uh, our so Ganassi guys pit my car, and that's something they're always stressing is just pit box location. Uh, too close to the wall, too far away from the wall, too far back, forward. Um, certainly time to be gain or lost with how you position your car in the box. It's easier said than done, though. I promise that stopping that 3,400-pound car with slick tires is no easy task. Um, contrary to what people might think but hey i know you got some stuff going on we've had a long show today appreciate your uh input here pit road pit road boats and woes how at you next week that's yeah. why you drivers get paid a lot of money to stop that thing in the box right all right you're the damn that's the damn true <laughs> that's true all right hey see you hey, see you of silence after one race and before the next the challenge of the track is heard most clearly send me your best men your best equipment they are barely good enough in honor of women's history month we're going to take a look at the life of one of nascar's pioneers mamie reynolds a car owner who became the first woman to win in the cup series before she reached her 21st birthday an heiress and daughter of controversial U.S. Democratic Senator from North Carolina, Bob Reynolds. Mamie Reynolds owned and drove race cars, bred horses, dogs, pygmy goats, and was the first owner of the American Basketball Association's Kentucky Colonels. Mamie Reynolds was born to Reynolds and his fifth wife, Evelyn Washington McLean Reynolds, on October 15, 1942 in Washington, D.C. Her father gained notoriety by breaking with FDR, and becoming the only Southern Senator to oppose the 1941 Lend-Lease Act that aided Great Britain before America entered World War II. He also voted against the draft. The Senator went so far as to blame London for the attack on Pearl Harbor on December 7, 1941. Reynolds' grandmother, Evelyn Wash McLean, was the last owner of the infamous and allegedly cursed Hope Diamond. Mamie allegedly buried the diamond, which is currently valued at $250 million in her sandbox as a child. What? Now, I'm not saying the diamond's cursed, but Mamie's mother reportedly ended her life with an overdose on sleeping pills on September 20th, 1946, a little less than a month before Mamie turned four years old. The $10 million that she inherited paid for a life of luxury and adventure. Talk about doing your research. J. Edgar Hoover, 
the director of the FBI, was her godfather. She lived in a different world, said Frank Fishburne, who briefly dated Reynolds when he was only 19. Reynolds apparently invited Fishburne to dinner. When asked what he should wear, Mamie said he should just come as he was, in a golf shirt and a pair of Bermuda shorts. A butler and coattails and everything served us dinner. Just the two of us, said Fishburne. Mamie was best known, in Asheville at least, for her great parties. She threw parties from hell, remarked Chappie Gennett, a retired lumber businessman at the time of her passing in 2014. They were always moderately formal parties, if you will, and the bands played on and on. We were slightly underage for drinking, but if you were 14 or 15 years old, that was enough. Hey, it was the 60s. That was a completely different time. Reynolds had a passion for racing. In fact, she met her first husband, Luigi Coco Cinetti Jr. in New York when he sold her her first race car that she ever bought. In the 60s, racing wasn't considered to be a ladylike avocation. Mamie liked to march to the beat of her own drum, so she formed Reynolds Racing and set out to find drivers. In 1962, she got the two of the best to sit behind the wheels of her cars, Daryl Derringer and Fred Lorenz. Derringer, five races and the Golden Boy for two. And wouldn't you know it, Lorenzen found his way to Victory Lane. Freddie, very popular, a bachelor, handsome young fellow, formerly from Elmhurst, Illinois, and now calls Charlotte, North Carolina, his home. It was on a warm Thursday afternoon in September of 1962 at Augusta Speedway that Fred Lorenzen and his 62 Ford held off some of the best talent in NASCAR at the time. Augusta Speedway with a half-mile dirt oval that hosted 12 Grand National events from 1962 to 1969. The front row that day boasted two NASCAR greats, Joe Weatherly on the pole and Ned Jarrett starting beside him. Old Freddie Lorenzen, well, he started fourth. The record books only show two leaders that day. And from the best I can figure, Ned Jarrett jumped out to a lead early and led a total of 181 laps. Action is fast and furious out on the track. Freddie Lorenzen and Ned Jarrett running one and two right now. Fred Lorenzen led the other 19, taking home the victory in a cool $1,000. For Fred Lorenzen, it's cheers and congratulations, prize money, and trophy. The rest of the top five reads like a who's who of NASCAR Hall of Fame, with the King Richard Petty coming in second, Joe Weatherly third, Ned Jarrett fourth, and Wendell Scott rounding out the top five. A couple of other also-rans in this race were Buck Baker, Jack Smith, and a guy named Cale Yarbrough. That win marked the first time in NASCAR's history that a female owner broke her way into the old boys club and notched a victory, doing it against the best that the sport had to offer. Reynolds followed that up by being the first woman to own a car that qualified for the Daytona 500 in 1963 with Ed Livingston behind the wheel. There are 69 entries here for the upcoming 500 mile race with only 50 spots available and everybody wants in. Reynolds' time as an owner in the Cup Series only lasted for 20 races across two seasons, but in that time she racked up one win, three top 10 finishes, and 7,280 big ones in prize money. According to one source, by late 1965, Mamie and her husband Chinetti were not getting along. And after a phone call to a certain head of the Federal Bureau of Investigation, she was liberated by agents. I guess when your godfather's J. Edgar Hoover, you can call it a favor too. She quickly divorced Mr. Chinetti Jr., only to get remarried to a dog breeder named Joe Gregory less than a month later. 
This marriage, however, would not require federal intervention as the two had two children remain married until her passing in 2014. They were also the first owners of the ABA's Kentucky Colonels. A 1967 article in the Asheville Citizen Times quotes her as saying about the purchase, I am absolutely tickled to death over obtaining the team. I am wild about basketball. From everything we've researched for this, it seems like Mamie had a passion for life. I mean, she drove in drag races, owned cars and competed on the sports car and NASCAR circuits. She traveled around the world seven times. And she was an American Kennel Club member who won prizes and owned slash trained several winning breeds. To quote Joy Fitchett, an Asheville native who knew Reynolds and attended some of her infamous parties, she had a good time. Let's let it go with that. Show's winding down here, guys. It's been a lot of fun. A lot of talk in my brain's about burned out. What we got for spare change? What we got? John Hunter Nemechek, bet on himself. Hashtag here for wins. Beat his boss on Friday night in the truck race. I'm sure that was a weight lifted off of JH's uh, shoulders. That was cool to see him have some success already this early in the year over there at KBM. We saw AJ Allmendinger, road course ringer, starting to turn into a mile and a half ringer. Watch out. He'll certainly be a contender. Uh, for that Xfinity Series championship once they get going to some of these road courses, he's going to start racking up some good playoff points. Uh, what else we learned? We like we learned that Cliff Daniels still alpha male, whether it be on the kickball field or on the pit box, he gets the job done. Him and Kyle Larson will be strong this year. Going to Phoenix, Julie Geezy's got that place tuned up, ready for us to rock. She's in the barn. She's got the cocktails flowing for you. Just show up, have some fun. I'm excited to get out there and have some fun this weekend here in Phoenix. Thank you all again for stacking pennies. Talk to you next week.